very familiar scripture that we've often used in reference to the conferences in different parts of the country, especially Black Mountain. Psalm 84, many of you could quote at least the opening statements of it. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs and yearns for your courts. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And then he goes on to say in verses 5, 6, and 7, How blessed is the man whose strength is in you, O Lord, whose heart is set on the highway to Zion, the road to Zion. Passing through the valley of weeping, you make it a spring of water. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength, every one of them appearing before God in Zion. Sometimes Hebrew poetry is hard to understand. It just sounds like a word salad to us. But these words are very insightful for uh, some specific issues that I want to talk about today. And that will become more clear as we progress. But one of the things that has come to my attention as I was preparing this uh, this time today together is that Seven years ago, when we recorded Mercy for the Memories, the, the CD, the, the music CD, it begins with three songs. Uh, How Lovely Is Your Dwelling Place, Psalm 84, Road to Zion by Mike Hudson, which also is taken from Psalm 84. And then the third song, Roll Away the Stone, makes a trilogy that would fit perfectly with the text that I want to try to uh, unpack today. It has to do with the unplugging of the, the, the flow of water in the life of believers that not only once it's unplugged releases a flow of life, but reverses death, reverses the curse and begins to bring about a transformation of the land. Poetically here, a picture of the entire life of, of the person individually, but I don't want you just to think about this in reference to individual restoration, although I'm, I'm always interested in that. But I'm much more interested in not only our personal in, in uh, restoration, but in investing ourselves and whatever it's going to take to bring about transformation, reformation, restoration, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for the delivering of, of millions of lives from destruction. And I want to say at the outset, and I'll probably make reference to this again before it's over, I'm increasingly becoming disturbed by an end times point of view among believers that is so preoccupied with the rapture, so preoccupied with what the devil is going to do at the end of the age, that there's no vision or desire, much less effort, towards restoration of people's lives, restoration of broken territory, and the retaking of wells that the enemy has filled in with with uh, gravel and dirt and muck in order to starve people to death. 
you understand metaphorically throughout this entire study, all these agricultural references that the Bible is so full of that talk about rain and wells and planting and breaking up your fellow ground and harvest and drought and famine and death and locusts and the invasion of a locust army. Uh, You see in Joel chapter 2, for instance, chapter 1 and 2, all of this has to do with picturing what we are living in in, 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 as believers uh, in the spiritual battle that we're in in the end of the age. And the focus of the end of the age is the harvest, Matthew 13, which we won't take time to turn to. But what I'm mainly wanting to talk about today has to do with your individual uh, relationship to this in your private life and also as that relates to your vision for your family for your community, for your city, for your state, for your nation, for the world. I know when you're hurting, you're not really interested in saving the world. But I'll tell you, most people I know who end up getting over their own private hurts uh, do so because they finally wake up to the fact that this is about something much greater than just their own private struggles. And once you hook into that vision and realize that you're part of something much larger than just your own private struggle, then your own private struggle becomes much larger in context and your vision and and faith in God coming to your rescue becomes much larger in context. And I believe God saves you because he loves you, but I also believe God saves you and loves you and has an intention for you that is far greater than just your own private little stuff. And so uh, it goes on to say here in Psalm 84 that uh, those who are on this pilgrimage, those who are heading toward the dwelling place of the Lord, they're, they're heading toward Mount Zion. Their hearts are set, King James Version says, their hearts are set on a pilgrimage. They go from strength to strength, even when they're going through an area that scholars tell us, the, known as the Valley of Baca, which refers to a dark, narrow area where instead of living, flowing streams of life-giving water, there's dark rivulets of dead water or tears. This is why the Valley of Baca is spoken of as a Valley of Tears. It also may have something to do with uh, balsam trees in the area that would weep. But the pictorial language of the poet here under a prophetic anointing, is saying, on the way to Mount Zion, into the presence of the Lord and the fulfillment of all the promises of God for you, the last, this was the last part of that trek. And and you got to a, a, a narrow, dark, gloomy place that actually was a, a graveyard. The uh, dark, ugly water that is euphemistically spoken of as a valley of tears uh, was a, a, a dead water pouring out of uh, rocks that had been piled up to cover up graves. So this is a picture of a slow-moving stream of putrid water surrounded by rocks as gravestones, speaking of death and loss and dryness and uh, nothing can grow there. There's the absence of any sense of vision the loss of any sense of hope or future. 
This is, I'm sure, what Mike had in mind when he wrote those great words in Road to Zion. Sometimes a shadow, dark and cold, lays like a mist across the road. But be encouraged by the sight where there's a shadow, there's a light. Those who are passing through this valley of Baca are spoken of as those who are going from strength to strength. Now, how are they going from strength to strength if they're going through such a terrible place where there's no living water to drink? Well, he tells you the reason is because they have, they have their heart set on Zion. The, the, uh, sometimes it's good to look back down. We've come so far. We've gained such ground. But joy is not in where we've been. Joy is who's waiting at the end. And I love the way the people always react in our conferences when we get to that line and they catch it, they get it. And they they just sometimes just lose it and go into open worship and praise out loud uh, when they capture the meaning of those words. You endure the shadow dark and cold because you have a vision in your heart of Zion and the king who stands on Mount Zion, who is Lord of everything. And he to you is everything. And because your heart is set on him, you then go from strength to strength, from faith to faith, uh, from from one level of, of faith to another level of faith. And uh, in the midst of this, you turn these corroded waters by your faith, these tears of sorrow and hopelessness and uh, disappointment and this this dead well with nothing in it, you turn that into a spring. You, Isaiah the prophet says, With joy shall we draw water out of the wells of salvation, and in that day shall we say, Praise the Lord. You draw well water out of the well of salvation, but when you do that, the implication here is, if you read the, the chapter, uh, read the whole, the so, whole psalm, God begins to hear the cry of his people coming up out of this dry, hopeless, sorrow-filled, narrow, dark place. And the poet says here that God answers the cry and the tears with the outpouring of his spirit from heaven. When the tears are turned from bitter, poisonous, angry tears to tears of repentance and then tears of longing, God hears that, responds to it, begins to pour out his spirit from heaven. And the waters begin to be healed as God pours out his spirit from heaven. It's a deep calleth unto deep. That, that deep thing in the pilgrim that looks to God and has faith in him and trusts him that, that this valley of darkness is not all there is, that there's something on the other side of this that makes this valley of darkness worth pressing through. And so this uh, promise of God to restore and to heal the poisonous waters, to awaken the dead seeds that have fallen into the ground and remained dead where there's no fruit, there's no, there's no uh, blossoming, that you, you, you water that with your tears. You destroyed it with tears of bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and unbelief. But you've repented, and now your tears are of hope and repentance and worship. And as, as that begins to cry out, then, then heaven answers. Do you see the picture? This is the poetic picture that, that's being painted here. Now, 
According to scholars, this death place was the last trying area to pass through before arriving at Zion. Faith expressed by those pressing on turned the place from a place of death into a place of springs where flowers begin to blossom. God responds to that faith and adds to their springs his rain upon it. Now, I've already said this. I want to say it again. It's easy, very easy to have a gloom and doom, hopeless attitude about the end of the age. And I have to admit, I've done quite a bit of teaching on end times stuff, and I still believe it. But I never intended it to become an excuse not to have faith for the move of the Holy Spirit at the end of the age. To hear some people talk, all the Bible has to say about the end of the age is that evil will get worse and worse and Antichrist will rise and take over the world and uh, the church will get weaker and weaker and lose more and more territory until finally we're just a tiny little group huddled up on the mountaintop hoping for the rapture. And just about the time there's not any other place to stand, uh, swoosh, we get raptured out just in time for the world to turn to hell. And the attitude about that, uh, the, 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 the mindset that creates is that every time bad seems to increase, some people get a morbid kind of comfort out of it. Oh, there's war in Israel. How wonderful. Maybe the Lord will come today. That kind of thing. And so there's there's a complete disregard for Jesus commanding us to occupy till he comes. We think occupy means just hold the fort till the cavalry comes. And that's not the meaning of the word occupy there. The word occupy in the Greek text means to do business. And the, the object of doing business is to prosper. The, the purpose of doing business is to increase the business. Jesus makes it very plain in several places, uh, like the parable of the talents, where he gives one, one of his servants one talent, one five and one ten, and he expects them to increase it, if nothing else, by it drawing interest. But he calls the one who doesn't do any increasing wicked. And the reason he's wicked is because he was lazy. And the reason he was lazy is because he had no vision. And the reason he had no vision is because he didn't understand the heart of his master. So I want to tell you that there's lots of other end time scriptures that talk about lots of other things beside the Antichrist and things getting worse and worse. Uh, some things get worse and some things get better. Evil men and seducers wax worse and worse, 2 Timothy 3 says. But Proverbs chapter 4 says the path of the just is like a shining light that shines brighter and brighter till it reaches perfect noonday. So while some things are getting darker, some things are getting brighter. While some things are getting more like themselves in that they are evil, other things are getting more like themselves in that they are becoming more like Christ. Can you see that? And so, yes, the, the, the kingdoms of this world become more and more dark while the kingdom of God gets more and more manifest. Jesus talks about earthquakes in diverse places and uh, uh, signs in the sky and portents and evil people and seducers and false prophets and counterfeit miracles. And he also talks about this gospel of the kingdom will be preached into all the world for a witness to all nations. Then the end will come. And the gospel of the kingdom is not just a 
list of doctrinal precepts that we all agree on. The gospel of the kingdom, according to the king of the kingdom, who is Jesus, is that you shall cast out devils, you shall heal the sick, you shall raise the dead, you shall preach the gospel to the poor. Jesus defined the gospel of the kingdom as all of that. So the gospel of the kingdom is not just passing out tracts to people, as good as that is and as wonderful as that is. The gospel of the kingdom is the clashing of the kingdom of God against the kingdoms of this world and the breaking of the power of those kingdoms. Jesus said, "When the if I cast out devils by the finger of God, then you know the kingdom of God has come to you. So the gospel of the kingdom include, includes the casting out of evil. Okay? Now, there's all kind of pictures throughout the scriptures. There's so many of them, we don't have time to look at all of them, of, of God pouring out water on dry ground in response to people getting so desperate for water, so desperate for renewal that they begin to repent and then God can reverse the curse that they have brought upon themselves by wickedness. Uh, for instance, Psalm 107, verses 33, 34, 35, he says, He changes rivers into wildernesses and springs of water into dry ground, a fruitful land into a wasteland because of the wickedness of those who dwell in it. He changes a wilderness into a pool of water and dry ground into living springs. And there he makes the hungry to dwell so that they may be established and to establish a habitable city and sow fields and plant vineyards and gather a fruitful harvest. And he blesses them so that they may multiply greatly. God seems to really like this multiplication thing. He likes there to be abundance of rain, so there's abundance of harvest, so there's abundance of crops, abundance of people, abundance of uh, inhabitants in a, in a righteous place. Isaiah 35, you read the whole chapter of Isaiah 35. I don't have, I, I didn't include the whole chapter. The whole chapter is a picture of the coming of Messiah. It says, but waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The scorched land shall become a pool and the thirsty ground living springs. And of course it talks about in that same chapter, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. Uh, the blind eyes will be opened. The deaf ears will be unstopped. The lame will dance. And, of course, uh, most Bible scholars, unfortunately, have uh, relegated this off to the millennium or something. Some Stick it off somewhere in some part of history that I don't have any responsibility for, and uh, then just treat it like either prophecy or, or poetry. Well, you know what? I know, ple- I know people right now whose eyes need to be opened, who ears, whose ears need to be unstopped, whose lame legs need to be uh, made to dance. I know places right now where there's desperate need for the outpouring of water on dry ground. I know places desperately in need uh, for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I'm not really interested in what happens in the millennium. It just doesn't, doesn't do a thing for me. I'm much more concerned with what's happening right now in front of me and around me, just blocks from my house where people are in desperate bondages of all kinds of demonic levels of evil and uh, who have no hope. And just block, I can look out my window and I see church steeples. I look out my other window and I see parts of town that those church steeples never reach. See, anyway. Isaiah 44, 3 through 5 says, I will pour out water on the thirsty ground. Actually, the word ground is not in the text. It's water on the thirsty. Streams in the desert. And I will pour out 
my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, and they will spring up like grass. See, God likes this business of multiplication. But how would you like to have a a promise given to you from God himself that he not only will pour out his spirit on you, but he will pour out his spirit on your children and your children's children and your children's children's children, uh, as as many as, as you can have? Well, how thirsty are you? I mean, how desperate are you for God to pour out his presence upon you and your children and your children's children? Well, I'll get back to that question before we finish here, but uh, Isaiah 45, verse 8. How does this righteousness get poured out? You understand when he talks about pouring out his spirit, pouring out righteousness, the word righteousness means holiness. It means God's mercy, his sovereign uh, authority to bring righteous justice and judgment and goodness where there has been evil and perversion and destruction and uh, injustice. Isaiah 45, 8 says, Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit. Let righteousness spring up out of the ground. Amos 5, 24, Let justice roll down like mighty waters, and righteousness like a never-ending stream. I love that verse. Hosea 10, 12, sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rains righteousness upon us. This is how righteousness begins to be rained upon us. You obey what it says in Psalm 84 and Hosea 10. Psalm 84 pictures a people who have become so desperate for the presence of the Lord that they're willing to travel even through dark, dangerous territory to get there. Uh, it has to do, you know, uh, sometimes I've heard people say, well, so revival broke out here or there? Well, so what? I don't need to go trotting off somewhere to to partake of revival. I can have revival right where I am. And, you know, I don't disagree with that. You can but most of the time when I hear people say that, they're not people who have revival right where they are. They're, they're, I don't mean this to sound judgmental. I mean, I don't know their hearts. But quite often when I hear people make those statements, I have to look at the lifestyle they're, they're living and the spiritual level of hunger that they seem to be operating in. And there's nothing I see in their demeanor that portrays a person who is so desperate for God that they will actually get God to come to where they are rather than they having to go where he's pouring his presence out on people who have paid that price. Um, does that make sense? You know, I, I know it's hard on our egos to admit that sometimes God responds to some groups more than he responds to us. And they have cried out for God to come and he has showed up and they are being affected by the manifest presence of God and nothing much is happening where you are. It's pretty dry. It's pretty dead. There's uh, not much river flowing, not any any, any rivers flowing. It's, uh, seeds are dead in the ground. Not much rain. Uh, I can really relate to that where we are because we're still in a drought physically right now. We're still six inches behind. 
But not only are we in a drought physically, I think it's a physical manifestation of the spiritual condition of this area in, in which I live. But see, we're not in a drought enough yet to be truly hungry. God pours his spirit out on the dry ground. He, pour, he pours his presence out on those who are thirsty. And I don't see a lot of people who are all that thirsty for the presence of God. They might want a few goosebumps on Sunday morning during a song service, or they might want to get a little bit of a thrill doing it during a sermon, as long as it doesn't go past 12 o'clock and doesn't interfere with the plans of the afternoon. They don't mind if there's some uh, emotional movement in the service on Sunday morning. But let God show up in an abundance of rain so that it disrupts the status quo and begins to overflow its boundaries and it begins to interfere in the flow of uh, the plans for the rest of the day and then the rest of the week and then the rest of your life. And we begin to find out how much people really want God and how much they would rather him stay in a bottle up on the, the shelf of religion and only be brought out at certain occasions when we can control the flow. So the desperation and the cry for, for reality. Um, I, I had a conversation with a, a man a few days ago, a man I have the utmost love and respect for. And so I'm not quoting him as a, 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 an example of wrong thinking at all. I know he loves God and I know what he was trying to say. Uh, they have in their church uh, uh, right now, uh, and this man lives in an, another state from where I live, but uh, they have in their church a group of people who are calling for prayer. They want round-the-clock prayer, and the way they're asking for this prayer time to be done seems to smack of a certain kind of self-righteous spiritual legalism, uh, kind of a looking down their nose at the rest of the church and saying, if you're really serious for God, you'll come do what we do the way we do it when we do it, and with the mindset we do it. And then there's other godly people in his church. They're good people. They love God. And their response to these other seemingly super spiritual people is, look, what's wrong with us just loving God and loving one another and living our life and doing our job and paying our bills and putting one foot in front of the other one and just following obediently the revelation of Scripture? What's wrong with that? And you see, both sides of this argument have truth, and both sides are missing other aspects of truth. The the and and I'm quite sure I'm I'm missing another part of it. But let me tell you what I can see from from my vantage point. Those who are being super spiritual and legalistic and judgmental are obviously wrong the moment they become super spiritual, legalistic, and judgmental. But their their hunger to pray certainly has validity. On the other hand, those who are saying, look, we don't understand this demand for prayer. What's wrong with just putting one foot in front of the other one and obeying God step by step, day by day, every day? And I say, absolutely, amen to that. What What's wrong with putting one foot in front of the other one every day and just obeying God? Nothing's wrong with that. But the prayer group is being judgmental toward those who don't see the need for prayer, and those who don't see the need for prayer are missing an, an, an obvious principle of Scripture that it's okay to put one foot in front of the other one and obey God day by day, step by step, when things are normal. But in times of desperation, 
And if you don't know that we are in times of desperation, then I don't really know what to say. But in times of desperation, in such as we are living in now, where there is a, a marked loss of the manifest presence of God, where the church is impotent. Not only is it impotent, but in many places the church is actually anti-Christ. It is working against the purposes of God, all the while claiming to be uh, the church. If you can't see that, and you can't see that the Scripture commands us to respond to such circumstances with a, a Something more than just putting one foot in front of the other one and doing the best we can day by day. Read the book of Joel. Read the book of Amos. Read the book of Hosea. Read the book of Jeremiah. Read the book of, uh, I mean, I could go just read the whole Bible. But the point is, you start reading the prophets and you start seeing what God required of his people in times when the spiritual level of living water was so low that they were in a spiritual drought where God says, for instance, in Amos, there will be a there will be a famine in your land, not a famine of bread and water, but a famine of the word of God. Well, we're in that famine right now. Uh, and uh, if you read Ezekiel chapter 14, you have good reason to be concerned with whether we might not end up in a literal famine uh, when you read what God has to say in Ezekiel 14. And that may be what it takes. We are so fat and happy and self-satisfied and so prideful in our uh, humility and so unclean in our righteousness that it may take something that drastic to awaken us. I don't know. I, I hope not. I don't believe that that would have to be the way it goes because Paul tells us in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 that God's, God's way of awakening a, a nation or a city or a people uh, from spiritual uh, stupidity into repentance is the prayers of the church, that it's the, it's the praying church that awakens the region that church lives in to its spiritual condition so that the gospel can be preached in peaceableness and righteousness. Uh, and, and, and that's God's primary way of reaching an area. His secondary way is chastisement. But his primary way is through the prayers of a faithful, believing, praying church. So if you don't have a vision for being a faithful, believing, praying church— and somebody in your church is awakened to the need for that, I can understand why those awakened to the need for prayer could get a little testy and even judgmental and even uh, self-righteous when they look at brothers and sisters around them who don't seem to have a clue and think that there's no need for prayer. But on the other hand, those who say put one foot in front of the other one and just obey God are exactly right. When people get so spiritually weird that they don't do the basics because they're too busy flying around in the ozone, then there's truth there too. But you know, right now, I'm not really looking for balance. In times of desperation, balance is just another word for self-deceptive passivity. Sow to yourselves in righteousness and reap mercy. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness upon you. Righteousness is not only restoration of justice, 
but it's God's rescuing mercy. Now, this is th- these verses are written for desperate people. They're not written for satisfied people who are just moseying on down the road. They're written for desperate people. They're written for people who, who are concerned not only for themselves, but for their neighbors. Not only for their neighbors, but for their own children. Not only for their own children, but for their neighbor's children. They are concerned, desperately concerned for the, for the condition of the people around them. These are the people that God speaks of in Amos chapter 6 when he says, uh, where are those who weep for, for the condition of Zion? Where are those who weep for the condition? Do you weep over the condition of the of the church in America? Do you weep over the condition of, of your neighbors and your friends? Do you sit in a restaurant and look around sometimes and wonder, do they even know God? Do they ever think of God? Does it ever cross their mind that they're going to live forever somewhere, either in the presence of the one who created them or a out of his presence, never to be rescued from their condition if they reject the mercy that's available now. Now, desperate people are the ones who become, uh, yeah, when you're desperate, you you know, a desperate person in the midst of people who are not desperate looks like a fanatic. A desperate person in the midst of people who are self-satisfied looks like a maniac. But the Lord says of those who are desperate enough to fast and pray and to cry out for him in Isaiah chapter 58. If you'll read, the, please read the entire chapter of Isaiah 58. But, but uh, I want to cite verses 11 and 12. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought. He'll make your bones fat. That's been my excuse my whole life. My bones are fat. You shall be like a well-watered garden and springs of water that never fail even in the midst of drought. Out from among you, you shall rebuild the old waste places. You shall raise up the ancient foundations. You shall be called repairers of the breach, restorers of the ancient paths that are being restored. How would you like to be part of that kind of restoration? That... uh, you see, if you have a if you if you have an end times vision that doesn't include good along with bad, if all your end time vision is is a, the rise of the antichrist and the kingdom of the dark of of darkness, with no place for the the kingdom of God, uh, also manifesting more and more, then you're not going to hear anything I'm saying. It's it's all about what the antichrist is going to do, what the devil is going to do, not what God's going to do. See, in some people, the path of the just is like a shining light that grows dimmer and dimmer till uh, the final tribulation. Thankfully, that's not what it says. Well, uh, Psalm 84, 6 says, Those who pass through the valley of weeping make the weeping place into a well of living water. How would you like to be a person who actually can turn the place that was weeping and and painful for you into a a place of restoration, a place of wellspring that people can actually drink out of and be healed and restored? See, wells dug by those who went before us are dug not only for the purpose of sustaining themselves, but also for, for us, those who come behind Abraham, of course, is the father of the faithful, and so he's the progenitor of this whole issue. Abraham is a picture of God's covenant people passing through the land uh, 
held by the enemy, established wells throughout that land, which the enemy later filled up with with earth, with the, the dust of death, closed off those wells. And if you want to read this, I'm not going to take the time to read these stories in detail. You're welcome. I I hope you will take time to read them. In uh, Genesis chapter 26, uh, and then again over in chapter 29, uh, you see the picture of these wells. And then along come Abraham's sons who come behind their father and revisit the places where their father has dug the wells. The wells had been filled in by the Philistines with dirt. And uh, in Genesis chapter chapter 26, as you, as you read the story here, as they begin to try to unplug the wells and restore them as a source of life, notice what happens here. Now, surely you don't need me to give you a blow-by-blow description of of what this represents. In verse 20 of Genesis 26, they try to fill up, they try to uncouple uh, or uncover the wells, and they are met by contention. Contention means conflict. Then in verse 21, they come to another well, and they try to open it up, and, and it's the name of the well is enmity. Now, what's the difference between contention and enmity? Contention is the original conflict, and enmity is the ongoing bitterness over that conflict. Now, I want to ask you something. Finally, let me get to the good part. Finally, verse 22 and 23, they, find, they come to the third well, and they're welcomed. And they they finally get to drink out of it, and they name that well uh, room for us. Finally, there's a place there's 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 a place for us. There's room for us. But how many of you listening to my voice have been walking with the, the Lord for years, and you had an experience with the Holy Spirit and with the Lord Jesus Christ by His Spirit? You came to know the Lord. You got filled with, your, with the Spirit. You you became part of a prayer group or a congregation or some gathering of believers. You were drinking out of the well of water of of the Spirit. And then whatever happened, there was contention. And the contention turned to enmity. And you have not been able to find a place for yourself ever since. Now, all of us know stories like that. All of us have been part, maybe, of stories like that. Every one of us can either tell stories that happened to us or it happened to somebody close to us of, of what happened. The water was so pure. Everybody was so happy. There was a sense of belonging. There was a vision for, for doing just what the Bible says. We were going to build and plant and be established and multiply and uh, take the land and live in a fruitful garden and all the way to the harvest. And then contention broke out. It doesn't matter what the contention was. We've all got our versions of it. We were all guilty of participating in it, either as the uh, perpetrator or as the victim, or maybe both, usually both. But the contention turned into enmity. 
And so now for years, the wells have been filled up with dirt, filled up with earth. How do the wells get opened up again? They're opened up, obviously, obviously by the repentance of enmity and the healing of contention. Now, how much we have to go back to those original moments and contact those original people, I don't know. Only the Holy Spirit knows where it's necessary to go back and and begin to deal with these issues on the very geographical territory where they occurred. And, And when, for whatever reason, that's not required or maybe not possible in this life. But what is always possible in this life is that the well of your own heart be emptied of any contention or enmity, so that there is room in your heart for any person who you once closed yourself off against. Now, there's another thing that closes up the well that's not just dealing with anger or strife. It's a little different. You get to Genesis 29 and you find that there's another kind of well that is closed off, not by dirt stuffed down the well, but by stone pulled over the top of it. Remember I mentioned a while ago when we did uh, Mercy for the Memories uh, seven years ago, I had no concept in my mind of uh, what I'm talking about right here. I, I didn't plan to start that healing album with songs from Psalm 84 and uh, then the third song called Roll Away the Stone. But you would think that I took the first three songs of that album and, and based it on this teaching, and I didn't. But in Genesis 29 if you'll review this, if you'll take time to read Genesis 28 and 29, the story of Jacob and uh, receiving his birthright and his blessing from his father, Esau becomes angry over it. Esau seeks to kill Jacob over the birthright. Isaac and Rebekah send Jacob away in order for him to marry a godly wife. One of the reasons they send him away, Esau has married into perversion. Esau loves evil. Esau loves the world, the flesh, and the devil. You read these stories without proper understanding, and you'll think Esau is just a good old redneck country boy who gets ripped off by his sleazy, manipulative, uh, weaselly little brother. Esau is a man's man, and he, and Jacob... Uh, uh, Jacob's just a little weasel who who is a mama's boy and can't do much. And that's the way you hear some people preach it. And that's not what's going on here at all. But Jacob is sent away to, to, to marry into godliness. And Jacob has an encounter with God at Bethel. You know, Jacob's ladder, that story. Then Jacob goes on to meet Laban's shepherds at the well, and the wells are covered with this huge stone. Jacob is told that no water can flow till the stone is moved when all the flocks arrive. See, he said, this is interesting to me. When all the flocks come back together in right relationship, then the stone is removed and the water can flow. I think of all the people I love 
and all the people I've hurt and all the people that I hurt that I didn't know I hurt. You know, when it comes to this rolling away of the stone, I was praying about this. How many of us have things in our past that we did to hurt people and then we went on about our business. We didn't even know that we had hurt them. It, we were so wrapped up in our own stuff or so preoccupied with our own struggles or so enamored with our own seductions or so whatever it is. We were just so wrapped up in ourselves or just caught up in the flow of life. We weren't trying to be selfish. We just didn't know. And so for us, an event that was nothing more than a vapor that was here today and gone tomorrow laid on somebody else's chest like a stone that we dropped on them. So for us, we, we don't even think about it. And for them, they never stop thinking about it. Or if they do stop thinking about it, when it's brought back to their mind, they react as if the stone just fell on them freshly. Only God can sort through such things. When, when, when the Bible talks about righteousness being poured out and justice like a never-ending stream, this is part of what it's talking about, folks. I believe with all my heart the day will come, maybe it's Resurrection Day, when I will be reintroduced to people who I deeply hurt. I'm not afraid of that at all because I love Jesus more than I fear confrontation. I want to put right anything that I ever did wrong to hurt anybody. That's more important to me than saving face. Saving face for who, for heaven's sakes? We're talking about the ever-living, almighty, eternal God whose eyes are flames of fire before whom nothing is hid, all hearts are open, all secrets known. What are you talking about saving face? That's as stupid as could be. The only thing you can do in the presence of a holy God is bow down and say, Lord, I want what you want. I want to do what's right. And so uh, I pray for this to happen before Judgment Day. I mean, but I thankful I'm thankful that whatever's not set right now will be set right then. That's why First John chapter four verse uh, I think what seven and eight says we can have boldness in the day of judgment. Perfect love casts out all fear. Fear has to do with fear of punishment. I have no fear of punishment. Because perfect love has cast out all fear. I, I know God loves me, and there's not anything he's trying to do to hurt me. So whatever chastisement or correct, correction or embarrassment, if you want to use that word, is manifested on the day of judgment is done so for my good and for the good of anybody I've ever hurt. But I don't want to wait till judgment day for that. Let, let righteousness pour down like mighty waters and justice like a never-ending stream. I mean, let it abundantly pour out now. I want it now because now is when it can have the effect for redemption and cleansing and healing of the present evil, the present wrong, the present bondage. It's the present. Why? What will that do? It'll awaken the dead seeds. What will that do? It'll bring forth a new crop. What will that do? It'll produce an, a wonderful harvest. It'll be part of the harvest 
or the end of the age. And so, you know what's wonderful to me about this? When all the flocks arrived together, then Jacob looks up and sees Rachel. Now, this is this is a picture of the church in ways I, I can't get into now. But Jacob sees Rachel, and he he immediately moves the stone. See, when you have a picture of the bride, when you when you understand the preciousness, I think about people who I, in my youthful ignorance, misused and hurt and improperly cared for. I mean, I didn't handle their needs properly. I was not mature enough to be a shepherd. I was not shepherded myself, and so I did not have a clue how to truly shepherd anybody else. I was just, uh, you know, a young man with a little bit of information and a little bit of talent and a lot of arrogance and a lot of ignorance turned loose by the charismatic movement on people who did not have any shepherd uh, to love them and guide them and help them. I'll tell you, folks, the non-charismatic part of the church was much wiser than we were, much more careful than the charismatic movement ever was of properly preparing young men and women for ministry and, and fathering them and shepherding them into ministry and watching their life and their character to make sure they were really worthy of their calling. They were much wiser than the charismatic movement ever, ever was. In our youthful arrogance, we threw away the baby with the bathwater and let loose a lot of problems. I was part of the problem that was let loose, and a lot of people were hurt by that. And so uh, uh, when you see the bride, when you see the church as she really is, and, and you love her, and you realize Christ died for her, her being that person with really bad breath that you don't want to have to talk to who always talks to you right up in your face, or that person who's obnoxiously always trying to get the attention, even if he has to behave like a nincompoop to get it and you're tired of him. Or that person who's always, always contentious and argumentative, no matter what subject comes up. When you start seeing them through the eyes of love, then you're not interested in keeping a stone over your heart. Jacob saw Rachel and he moved the stone then he kisses Rachel and cries with a loud voice and just bursts into tears. I love the flow of emotion in this story because at the same time he's weeping and moving the stone, which is a huge stone, by the way. This is not a little weaselly mama's boy who, who uh, is moving the stone. Laban runs up and meets Jacob, throws his arms around him and kisses him, and thus begins a godly home in covenant relationship that God can bless. Jacob, God has loved. Esau, God has hated. Why? Jacob is a building a godly house, a godly heritage under covenant with God, while Esau is making a covenant with darkness. Now, I want to close this whole thing with, I want you, I want you to try to bring together in your mind Intercessory prayer, repentance, the healing of estrangement, the cleansing of, of, of bitterness, unforgiveness, and darkness out of the well of our hearts so the water can flow, the outpouring of the Spirit 
upon dead seeds so that crops can burst forth for the harvest. And having a vision for good in the end of the age instead of just Antichrist 666, devils, demons, and despair. Because you got to remember, while all the bad stuff's happening, in this house shall be glory, the Lord says. The glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former. That's not just for the millennium, for heaven's sakes. It's for us. It's for the people of God in the earth, fulfilling God's kingdom purposes, while at the same time, yes, the earth is getting darker and darker. Um. I want to try to I want to try to illustrate all this with a couple of testimonies, recent testimonies. Back in January, Mary and I uh, were praying like we do every January for direction for the year. Now, many of you know I'm from Mississippi. I was raised there and moved to Texas in 1984. And uh, I tell people I was born and raised in Mississippi, but I grew up in Texas. And I do tend to claim Texas as home more than Mississippi for lots of reasons, mostly because Mary and, and, and our children. But uh, growing up in Mississippi, uh, I met the Lord in Mississippi, and I was filled with the Spirit there. And I had my first spiritual experiences there, as, uh, as well as living many dark and painful days there. But in uh, in January, I was praying uh, for direction for the year, and all of a sudden, there appeared in my mind the face of a young man. He is a young man because he and I are the same age. In fact, he's a year older than me, so he's a very young man. Uh, Gr- Grant Gregory and I were in college together. I hadn't seen Grant in 15 years, and I hadn't actually seriously been able to talk to him face-to-face in 32 years. His face appeared before me, and out next to his face was the word July. I had no idea what it meant, but it was very vivid, and so I kind of just put it aside in my heart. Several weeks later, I get a phone call from Grant Gregory, and among other things, Grant said, I I want you to come in July to lead our Bible conference at our church here in Mississippi. Well, I didn't really have to pray about that, did I? I mean, I'd heard from the Lord already. I knew I was to go. So come July, it's time for me to go to the Bible conference. And uh, on the drive down to uh, that central part of Mississippi, I was passing through North Mississippi, headed toward Grant's, when out of the front of my car window appeared... In the sky, and I'm sure everybody could see it. I, I thought they could see it. I certainly saw it. What looked like a giant hydrogen bomb mushroom cloud. It was a cloud formation, but it looked like a hydrogen bomb mushroom cloud. There was, the top of it was just blazing with the light of the sun from behind it. Underneath the uh, the capstone of, of the mushroom cloud, it was raining. It was raining all the way around it. I mean, picture an umbrella with with water pouring out the underside of the umbrella all the way around. Then the inner shaft of the of the formation 
had rainbows inside of it. I'd never seen anything like it. I called Mary on the phone just to tell her, describe to her what, what I was seeing. But I, I'm unlike many people, for some reason, I, I have a resistance to taking pictures of things with a telephone. I just can't get into it for some reason. So anyway, I had no picture of it except in my head. But when I got to my destination and could get quiet before the Lord, this is what I sensed the Lord say to me. He said, I am about to bomb the enemies of my kingdom that have held this place in bondage for, for generations. I'm going to pour water on the dry ground and I'm going to restore hope to my people. I mean, the H-bomb cloud, the water pouring out from underneath, and then the, the, the uh, rainbows in the center. Now, at the same time that this was occurring, unbeknownst to me, there was a man who also I had not seen in over 30 years, who was praying in his barn. And uh, the reason I know is because he called me after he heard, if I have the story right, he heard me tell this about the H-bomb symbol uh, in a recorded message. And he contacted me and he said, I was praying for this area. And he said, I didn't see anything, but I heard it. And then he quoted to me 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 41 through 44, where Elijah says, or Elijah says, uh, that he hears the sound of abundance of rain. And he said, uh, Elijah, uh, went into intercession. You know, he didn't say, I hear the rain and then sit back and do nothing. He said, I hear the sound of abundance of rain. And then he went and assumed the posture of a woman in travail and begins to birth in prayer what he's heard in the Spirit. And I knew that that was exactly what the Holy Spirit was saying for us also, that we have to birth in prayer what he, what he revealed in the Spirit. But this man said to me, I got the audio of your video. You got the picture in the cloud of what I was hearing in the Spirit. Now, to give greater strength to this story, he and I had been part of a gathering of believers in the early Jesus movement days that had become, it was a well that many, many people drank out of. It was a well that fed people around the world because it was a, a, a military, a ministry connected to the military. Uh, lots of people took the gospel that, that uh, they had learned uh, and been saved by around the world. But like so many other things in those days, it became filled with earth. It became filled with bitterness. It became a place of contention and enmity. And uh, through everybody's fault, I mean, there is no one of us that can be blamed, although in my opinion, I carry a great deal of responsibility for for much of what went wrong. Uh, it 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 went it went bad. Uh, what was so good, sweet, good, clean, clear water became uh, tepid and poisonous. 
and what was a monument to, to goodness became a, a, a slab over a tombstone. And uh, we all uh, jumped ahead of the Lord and decided we were going to build a building and move out of the building we were in and build a building. And we laid the foundation, and the foundation never was built upon. The foundation laid there like a, like a tombstone, like a slab. And uh, we built a smaller building next to it in order to house the congregation, but the slab remained a slab. And I, I please, if any people should ever hear this who were part of that, I want you to understand all of us were to blame in some ways, but those of us in leadership obviously were more to blame than anybody else. And uh, And those of us who had secret sin in our life, as I had, which I've talked about in other places, uh, obviously have much to answer for, for that failure of that purpose of God being fulfilled in that, in that region. But you know what? 30 years later, this man who hears the sound of abundance of rain is told by the Holy Spirit to go to that location. And when he arrived there, he found himself doubled over in the front seat of his car in deep travail, like a woman in travail, weeping and weeping as he cried out to God for the cleansing and healing of that land, for the restoration of that ministry, and for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Ever since that day, that congregation has been growing and the vision is being restored. I believe the day will come not long from now when that slab will be turned into a foundation and the building of God will be built there. As the flock comes together, the stone is taken off. And who did who did the removing of the stone? One man. One man. You might be the one man or the one woman who hears the cry of the Spirit in your heart rising up and who becomes the repairer of the breach.